We haven't talked about First Energy and its rotten scheme in a little while. We're talking about it on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, in which we have conversations about the stories we have on our platforms and the stories behind those stories. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. And Lisa is up on First Energy. The utility's role in supporting Generation Now, which was Larry Householder's dark money bribery fund, is well known. But it turns out a bunch of other interests pump cash into the fund, too. Who are those companies and agencies that handed over cash to the most corrupt official in Ohio history? Yeah, there was a list that came out during the trial of the House Bill 6 bribery scandal, and it included a list of contributors to the Generation Now uh, nonprofit, which is a 501c4 that would could keep its money secret and its donors secret. And this came out, you know, from the FBI investigation and lots of testimony about it in the, in the bribery trial. So Generation Now collected about $64 million total in its three and a half years of existence. 93% of that money, about $60 million, uh, came from First Energy and its subsidiaries. But by 2019, when they shifted their focus, it became up to 97% of the money. So other big donors, nursing homes, there were several nursing homes. Ohio Healthcare Association donated $495,000. Suburban Nursing and Mobile Homes, which is weird connection to me, but anyway, $100,000. American Electric Power of Columbus gave $700,000, and its CEO, Nick Akins, met with Jeff Longstreth and Larry Householder back in 2020. After that meeting, he wrote a $100,000 check and $500,000 to another Householder nonprofit group. Casinos gave a fair amount of money. Jack Entertainment, $75,000. Penn National Gaming, which is Barstool Sports, $125,000. But big donors were unions. The United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners of America gave $210,000, Affiliated Construction Trades of Ohio, $250,000, and a big donor, Political Education Patterns, which is an arm of the International Union of Operation Engineers, Local 18 in Cleveland, they gave $395,000. So a lot of money flowing into Generation Now. But when it started, Generation Now was first used to support GOP candidates in 2018. 18 Ohio primaries who would later vote for Larry Householder as House Speaker, but then they started refocusing to House Bill 6 by 2019. Look, if people take nothing else away from this scandal, it's this. All of these entities felt that to get anything out of the legislature, they had to pay into a dark money fund. It is 100% the definition of pay to play. And we know that's how it worked because there were quotes from Larry Householder during the trial where if somebody wasn't on his team, he wasn't going to move their legislation. Dave Greenspan being one of them. His cause was dead because he wouldn't do Larry Householder's bidding. These companies, these nursing homes, everybody else felt that they had to pay into a corrupt dark money fund or they wouldn't get taken care of by the legislature. How bad is that? That's the message. This is Ohio government. This is how it runs. Yeah. And, you know, there were all kinds, of, I can name other donors as well. AT&T gave some money. I mean, so everybody thought that their money would uh, grease the skids in the legislature. 
I, that's the way it used to be in Cuyahoga County when DeMora and Russo were running it. It was a pay-to-play kind of scheme, and nobody honest wanted to do business in the county. That's harder on the state level. If you're AT&T, you can't just say, well, we're going to skip Ohio. So they, they put money in. They shouldn't. It's corrupt. You shouldn't be buying favors by paying into dark money funds. That's how Ohio works, and nothing has changed. Not a single thing has changed from then to now. A dark money fund could be created right now in which corruption would rage and we wouldn't know about it. It is the lasting impression of HB6 in this scandal. So and, big and story. I, I know that somebody we talked to, and I can't think, it might have been somebody from Case or a law professor who said that actually 501c4s are the perfect money laundering instrument. I know. It, it, it really is. Like Jake Zuckerman has said from the beginning, this case would blow the door off how Ohio government runs. And he is absolutely right. This story that he wrote and uh, published yesterday is the clearest evidence that Ohio is one stinky, rotten government and everybody participating in it is tainted. And I, listening say, to, to, I, I just wanted ahead, to say that Jake just got these records from the householder trial and that, you know, he's going to be going through a bunch of recordings and, and stuff that flashed up on the screen really quickly during the federal trial where you can't have your computer and you couldn't have a camera in the courtroom. So we'll see what else we can dig out. You know, I think it, it's not over yet. Well, and I should say, if anybody who is in Ohio government takes offense at these characterizations, prove it. Do something to close down dark money funds. That If, if you don't believe you are part of a corrupt system, fix it, because otherwise you are complicit in it existing. It's Today in Ohio. Speaking of householder, when does he finally go to prison? I'm getting emails from people saying the fishermen have been convicted and gone to prison <laughs> faster, jail faster than Larry Householder. Why isn't he in prison? This is justice delayed. Lisa, what is the timetable here? Well, I, I do know that things in sentencing move slower in federal court, so that might be part of it. But Larry Householder will be sentenced on June 29th for uh, counts of racketeering and conspiracy in connection, connection with the $60 million House Bill 6 bribery. Um, Matt Borges will be sentenced the very next day, but he on similar charges, but specifically for bribing a political operative who was running a campaign to repeal House Bill 6, and he paid money to get inside dirt on that campaign so they could deep six it. Um, both men face up to 20 years in prison. Others who are you know, supposed to be sentenced, pled guilty, former First Energy lobby, lobbyist Juan Cespedes. Well, uh, there's no sentencing date set for him. Or for householder political aide Jeff Longstreth, who testified during the trial that no jail time for him would be preferable. But he gave up a lot of good information. He was one of the star witnesses in the trial. So we'll see what happens with Cespedes and Longstreth. And then another defendant, lobbyist Neil Clark, died by suicide back in 2021. And Generation Now is actually a defendant in this case, but we can't exactly throw the nonprofit in jail, but we're throwing all of its operators in jail, hopefully. I, I'm betting that the sentencing is the trigger for the next step. We're all waiting for the looming indictments of the first energy executives who funded this whole thing. Their lawyers have said in court they expect those indictments any moment. And I wonder if the prosecutors just want to wrap this up, get these guys sentenced, get them in their orange jumpsuits and move on. I should say, too, 
I've, I've heard from some people when we've discussed the conviction of Larry Householder that they're saying, you know, you sound almost exultant. It's like, yes, anybody who cares about honest government should be exultant that mm-hmm. a crook like Larry Householder got convicted. I make no apologies for being exultant that this slime ball who did all this dastardly stuff is going to prison. And we should point out parts of HB6 remain on the books and mm-hmm. have defenders like Bill Seitz. Yeah, I, I do hope that Mr. Householder saved that orange knit cap that he was wearing to trial because it'll match his jumpsuit. <laughs> yeah, one. that was a really poor fashion choice. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Now that party labels for Ohio Supreme Court races are listed on the ballot, do Republicans have a strategy for taking all seven of the seats? The election is not until 2024, but has the battle begun, Laura? Oh, it's on already. Franklin County Common Pleas Judge Dan Hawkins is the latest entrance in the race. He's part of a three-candidate GOP slate. They're attempting to remove two the two of the three sitting Democratic justices and then keep a third Republican seat in the Republican hands. The judge says, I believe my decades of experience as a prosecutor and judge have prepared me to serve Ohio's justice. He says he wants to, he doesn't want to legislate from the bench, which I mean, does any judge ever say they do want to legislate from a bench? We'll, we'll have to see what the actions are. But he's been a Franklin County judge for years and kept on winning, even though the county has been fairly Democratic during that time. Look, it's um, the, the party labels. It's something the voters clearly wanted to see because mm-hmm. it did change the way they voted in the last election. Democrats say, oh, it's unfair. It's unfair. But that, that's an argument to deprive the voter of information they they clearly want. We could have seven Republicans and no Democrats serving on the Supreme Court in the not distant future. Absolutely. The November 2022 election was the first one with partisan labels. Republicans swept that. So I think they're banking on this success. They've got Hamilton County Common Pleas Judge Megan Shanahan. She's seeking a seat as well as Justice Joe Dieters. He's currently serving, was appointed by Governor Mike DeWine. So we're not sure exactly if he's running for the same seat or who's running... We don't know the entire slate of candidates. We don't even know if the Democrats on the current uh, uh, judge judges are going to be running. So that's yet to be seen. And again, 2024. So we've got a little ways. They don't campaign quite the same as politicians, but, you know, Hawkins will be going on a speaking tour around the state. It is a presidential election year, so maybe all those people that are that are rabid to reelect Joe Biden will show up and elect Democrats. Ha, ha, ha. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I think we're wrapping up the the end of the pandemic emergency discussions today. We have several. The first is, how has the pandemic made lasting changes to the commercial real estate market? And Layla, how are the property owners responding to that? Well, so as of February of 2022, there was a Gallup poll that showed that half of Americans work from home at least part of the week. And the popularity of this hybrid work model has forced the real estate market to accommodate for that preference, both at home and in the workplace. In commercial real estate, reporter Megan Sims tells us that employers are trying to revamp their workspaces to make them more enticing for workers who have grown accustomed to the comforts of working at home. So we're talking about fewer cubicle farms and more open spaces that feel a lot like living rooms with sofas and comfy seating and also state-of-the-art conference rooms and kitchens. 
building owners are, are often taking this extra step of creating spec suites in their buildings. So these are office spaces that are move-in ready so business owners can see exactly what kind of space they'd be getting. It's higher risk to invest in setting up these spaces before you have a tenant, but apparently it's worth it because they got to get you got to get people to come back downtown, for example. Amenities are really important for office space, too. Businesses want access to in-house fitness centers, uh, outdoor spaces, dining options, lounges, and, and retail. I thought it was interesting to hear how parking garage owners have also adapted to hybrid work models. They can cut a deal with businesses where they limit the number of swipes that they have for getting into the garage. So if you have some employees who are working from home some days, you only need so many spots on any given day in the in the garage. Not everyone needs a dedicated parking space every day. Oh. So, like, well, there is a problem with that philosophy. the The whole reason you want to bring people together is for that chemistry and what you get by being together. If you space out everybody over the week so you have fewer parking spaces, you lose some of that critical mass that you have. In our newsroom, we're we're there the same three days every week, two days in the summer, because we want people to have those fiery conversations that you and I are so famous for, Layla. So <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I mean, if I if we spaced it out and said, you have to come in three days anytime between Monday and Friday. I think there'd be a lot of days without that critical mass. I think that's true. But but imagine that the other side of our business comes in on the other days of the week and we share parking spaces that way. You know, our advertising and marketing folks. Oh, good point. I, yeah. I want to say that it's not the comfy couches that I, that I like about working from home. Like, are they going to put a washing machine in I was at the office the so I can do my load? <laughs> yeah, everyone brings a dirty laundry a <laughs> do it. Yeah, I mean, like, that. people don't like it because there is comfy seating. They like it because they can, like, walk their dog. Yeah. So unless you're allowing them to bring their dog and their laundry to work, like, I don't really <laughs> and think they're kids. getting it. The I, you know, can I get the, the kids off the bus and have them <laughs> plop down and do their homework in the lounge? <laughs> But, you know, yeah. there there are downsides to the open concept. When I worked at MD Anderson, I worked in a cube farm. But right after I retired, they moved to this totally open concept mm -hmm. in another building. And it was so bad that people were putting up barriers just to block their because you're looking, you know, right in somebody's face or whatever. So I don't know. Open concepts to me are still kind of. The jury's out on that, yeah. I think. Our newsroom has an open concept, and we came from the cubicle farm about 10 years ago. So, it, it, you know, I think everyone is pretty well adapted to it now in our newsroom. But, um, but I agree that, I mean, you do see anyone who's taking a phone call leaves the space and finds some right. quiet corner to do you it. Know, I, my first two newsrooms didn't have cubicles. We had a series of desks. We were all pretty close. And nobody left. You didn't have cell phones. You, you picked up the wired phone. And everybody did their work just fine. I'm not sure. I, I go back to what Lars says. I, I hear from people pretty regularly that are dead set against a return to the office. They, they believe they're getting their work done. It's much more convenient for them. And they, they really don't want to do it. They, they're, they're furious that employers are, are forcing it. And we've talked about how it's good for the socialization. The hybrid is, I guess, the long-term answer, but you can't tell me that you don't get annoyed on Tuesdays when you have to get up and say, oh God, it's an in-office day. I got to get dressed, <laughs> right? Yeah. The commute and getting ready, it takes a lot of time. Um, and I, honestly, even though there are distractions at home that you don't have in the workplace, those distractions often, I find, take less time to deal with than getting ready, driving in, and then some of the 
you know, the little chit chat that goes on in the workplace. <laughs> I mean, right. Oh, do I, just be rude and be like, I'm sorry, I cannot talk. I to know you right there's now. a lot. I mean, I do love seeing everybody and I have enjoyed the return to our newsroom culture. But it's there are days when you're like, I did a lot of chit chat and didn't accomplish nearly as much as I would oh, if yeah. I were at home at my desk. No. I, I think the one done. thing that Sean touches on in the story is for young employees who th- th- who haven't established themselves, like the work from home is hard because like you're just a name, right? Like how do you get promoted? How do you get mentored if you're not, you know, talking to people and, and getting that FaceTime every day? Right. This is totally yeah, it's, true. It, we're, I don't think we've reached the end of this road. It's, it'll be interesting to see what it looks like in 10 years. Well, that's what Sean's story said. It was really, it was like, it, it's like an earthquake every day. Like nobody is settled. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Is creative writing a new way to cope with the modern day stresses of working in healthcare? This was an interesting theory, Laura. Yeah, so writing can be a a huge outlet for stress. And Dr. Gautam Rao, he's Division Chief of Family Medicine at UH Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. He's a published author of several fiction and nonfiction books. He single-handedly organized this meeting of about a dozen doctors and nurses in the greater Cleveland medical community for anyone interested in becoming a better writer. So they all went to Case Western Reserve and to the brownstone building known as a writer's house and they introduce themselves they're they're learning how to express themselves and even cope with medical stresses through writing the idea is like you push creative boundaries you find a safe supportive space to try something new and i mean i like to i mean obviously i'm in this profession because i like to write and i feel this is not an original thought, but a lot of times you work out your feelings while writing. That's why people keep a journal, right? Because sometimes you don't understand your thoughts or feelings until you write them. Yeah, it's an interesting, we're in a writing profession, so we write all the time. I don't know that I would write to relax because it's my day job. (laughs) But for people that don't, I, I guess this would be a cathartic way to work through your issues. Layla, you've mentioned you have somebody in your home in the healthcare profession. Do you see that oh, person using writing no way. to work through? He uses <laughs> he uses Wordle. <laughs> you can only do one Wordle a day though. No, he does I mean, all the puzzles. Is, but no, he's not this a writer. <laughs> foreign to me. Like Anna Quinlan in her book Write for Your Life has a whole chapter on how writing can ha- help doctors and nurses. And she says like that contemplation and self aim is examination that writing brings is really suited from the medical industry. And I recently sent him to a podcast of the author Abraham Verghese. He's a doctor talking about the covenant of water. He went and got his MFA. So he has an MD and an MFA because he wanted to tell a story outside of medical facts and figures. And he says it moves people in a different way that they actually feel it more, even if it's fiction, which is fascinating. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. You go to the gas pump and you see unleaded 88 is cheaper than unleaded 87. Or you see something called flex fuel that is way cheaper than everything. Layla, what is this stuff? And will this cheap gas actually save you any money? Sean does a really good job of explaining the science behind fuel in this story. Basically, the number associated with these types of fuels refer to their octane, which measures how much heat and pressure a fuel can withstand before it ignites. Most vehicles are designed for unleaded 87, and higher-end vehicles take higher-octane fuels. So unleaded 87, 89, and 91 all contain up to 10% ethanol, which is a type of alcohol made from corn that's used for fuel. But then you have these cheap gases. 
unleaded 88 is 15% ethanol, and flex fuel can be anywhere from 51 to 83% ethanol. Flex fuel can only be used in vehicles that are designed for it, by the way. So that that's one factor here. But ethanol has just two-thirds the energy of pure gasoline. So the more ethanol in your fuel, the less energy it has per gallon. Unleaded 88 will get 3 to 4% fewer miles per gallon than regular unleaded 87 gasoline, and flex fuel will get about 15 to 27% fewer miles per gallon compared to 87. So you're paying less per gallon of flex fuel or unleaded 88, but it burns less efficiently and you'll be filling up more often. So Sean says the flex fuel has to be at least 90 cents per gallon cheaper than unleaded 87 to make it worth it. Otherwise, it could just end up costing more to use flex fuel. Whether unleaded 88 saves the driver any money is, is a little bit more debatable and squishy. It depends entirely on the fuel economy of the vehicle and the price of gas at individual gas stations. But the upshot is that if unleaded 88 is at least 20 cents cheaper than regular, it, it's probably worth it. That's kind of the rule of thumb he laid out. If, if the difference is just a few cents, you should go with the regular. Although the big wrinkle is that you do have to go get gas more often, which is annoying and tedious. Totally. So if you like longer time between fill-ups, that also plays into it. What do you value more, a few pennies or your time? Yeah, I hate going to the gas station. Me too. Oh. <laughs> this was a no-brainer for yeah. me. No way. But... It does it does answer the question of why is the 88 cheaper than the 87 and you're right he did take the technology and make it very accessible to all which we appreciate. You're listening to today in Ohio. All right Lisa the last time we discussed Roundwood Manor, the mansion of the industrialists who developed Shaker Square and Terminal Tower. The current owner was trying to turn it into condos but Hunting Valley said no. What's the future of this historic landmark now? Well, it can be yours for $4.5 million. Roundwood Manor was built in 1924 at 3450 Roundwood Road in Hunting Valley. Um, it was for the Van Swearingen brothers. It was built by architect Philip Small. Its current owner, Sylvia Corey, did try to save it from redevelopment by converting it to condos, but Hunting Valley uh, officials would not let her do that. It's a really beautiful property. Actually, when it was built, it was originally 90,000 square feet. And it had 50 rooms and 24 guest suites. But in 1946, it was bought by Stouffer frozen foods magnet Gordon Stouffer, and he reduced the square footage to its current you know, footprint of 55,000 square feet. It's got eight acres, 10 bedrooms, 14 bathrooms, a 60-foot indoor pool, Grand Central Hall, several dining rooms, a tennis court, large gardens, a seven-car garage, and your taxes will only be $53,482 a year. So there you go. And they even have a Dickens room where there are, you know, books by the author Charles Dickens. In 2018, it was on the National Register of Historic Places. I would think in Hunting Valley, $4.5 million is not a terribly high price. We'll see how it moves. I, I would choke every year that I wrote a tax check for $53,000. <laughs> I just, what are you getting for that $53,000? You're getting the same services as the people paying you know, a quarter of that. It's just shocking how much property taxes are based on the value instead of the service you get for it. it it'd be nice if they preserve it because these are folks that, 
that left their signature on Northeast Ohio, but who can afford to upkeep a mansion like that? That's that seems like just a money pit. Yeah, but there are plenty of other, you know, mansions that go for that price and more in Hunting Valley and Moreland Hills and they're probably you know, updated though. I feel like this probably hasn't had the same kind of you know, state-of-the-art kitchen kind of upgrades that a lot of people want if they're paying that much money. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't looked at the pictures, but, um, you know, of course, they did reduce the footprint, but it is an old house. It's it's It'll be 100 years old next year, so. Surprised nobody's looked at turning it into some sort of museum because people I was thinking a it. really chic boutique hotel. Like, yeah, but Hunting you know, Valley wouldn't allow it. Uh, they probably won't. Not. Hunting, Hunting Valley doesn't want the proletariat coming inside their borders. <laughs> That's, right. That's why condos, they wouldn't let it be condos. <laughs> right. They don't I want know, you coming plenty, in there. Plenty big enough for condos, man. Yeah, it would have been. It's just they're very snooty in Hunting Valley. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Back to the end of the pandemic emergency. We talked about the idea of hybrid work, but three years in, is there anything else permanent in how our approach to work has changed? Laura. So these changes are still shaking out. Um, 63% of young professionals say they work a hybrid schedule, saying they remote work remotely from home, and 11% completely remotely, and 26% to the office 100% of the time. But that switches all the time. Like if you ask them a year before, it was completely different numbers. So employees, employers have this option to call employees back to the office, but just like we talked about before, you know, they yeah. can say no. It's yeah. Let, 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 let's get away from the hybrid. What what about the actual workday? How has that changed? Well, some of them said, you know, you don't have to start at 8 a.m. anymore on the dot. You can start in the morning if that works better for you. And so they're trying to be more flexible and meet their their employees needs more well, more enhanced and, benefits yeah and and before the pandemic nobody met remotely even though you had the tools to do so i mean right often... and people have realized that zoom is really convenient i mean i don't think anybody loves being on a zoom call i mean i don't know that anyone ever wants to hear you're on mute ever again but we say it <laughs> all can the time I, can i confess but, something here listen um when when before the pandemic when you guys trained us on teams i didn't pay attention to that at all because i was like i'm never gonna use this (laughs) (laughs) i remember sitting there thinking i'm never ever gonna have a teams meeting why do i even need to know this because we were isn't it it funny though because when i was doing a bunch of interviews for my childcare series you know back Back in the old days when I was a regular reporter, I would just call people and we would just set up like, I'll call you at this time. And now I feel like most of my interviews were by Teams or Zoom. Like it's become so easy that people are setting those up instead of phone calls because you can just put it on your calendar and then everybody just clicks the same button. You don't even have to have a phone number. Well, it's the multiple people too. I mean, our editorial board, I don't think we've had anybody in person have we, have we, Lisa and Lisa? I don't think we've had we, anybody in person. No, not for the meetings. We we met for the mayoral, the Cleveland mayoral race, and that was the last time. Yeah, that right. Which okay, a year and a half ago, and it's convenient because they don't have to drive into where we are. One of the beauties of it is, you used to have to drive to go meet somebody face to face, and that sucks up time, especially if traffic is thick at rush hour. This is quick. Everybody, I think, appreciates this as a time management tool. And you're right, Mm -hmm. uh, Layla. No one would have embraced this until the need became obvious. And now everybody is continuing to use it. I can't tell you how many meetings that I have 
on teams instead of person to person. That we're but are, always... Do you think you're having teams meaning that you would have had phone calls before? No, because on a no. phone call, you, you can only have one other person. So I remember it's... used to having to dial it. Like we used to have that every day where we would all dial the same number and you'd hit like a button if you were the organizer of the meeting. And I mean, it was like a 10 o'clock call we had, but now we all do it by teams. Yeah, that's um, right. It's become, it's just become, I don't see it going away. Anything else in that story that looks like it's going to stick? I mean, I think they're still shaking out. I, I think it's going to be a push-pull for a while between what employees want and what employers want and finding that balance. Um, and it's going to depend on the industry. Wasn't there something about four, four 10-hour days as opposed to five eight-hour days? Yeah, that was, Sean mentioned that in his story. And I think that's a possibility if your employer is cool with that, right? If you're going to, you could do 10 hours, four days in a row instead of five days with eight hours. I don't know how workable that is for a lot of people, but, or a lot of businesses. Okay. Let's wrap up the pandemic, Layla. The end of the pandemic means changes in testing vaccines and COVID reporting. What's the upshot for regular people? So in a nutshell, this means more out-of-pocket costs for those things. COVID-19 testing, vaccines, treatments, they'll eventually return to just typical health care coverage instead of being government-subsidized as, as we had grown accustomed to. COVID is considered endemic now, so it's just something we're going to have to deal with like any other communicable disease that spreads every season. So immediately we're going to notice that free COVID tests from the federal government are, are a thing of the past. Insurance companies might not cover the cost of over-the-counter tests anymore, and there might be a cost to tests administered at the pharmacy. The Ohio Department of Health, will st still they still have a supply of free tests that will um, be distributed to local health departments, schools, and long-term health facilities and other community partners on request. And folks on Medicaid will still get free tests. COVID vaccines are likely to remain free for most people because they're considered preventative under Obamacare and they'll be covered by insurers. Ohio Medicaid will cover COVID-19 vaccines through September 2024. People who don't have insurance will get free vaccines through September 2024 as well at pharmacies, health departments, and, and federally qualified health centers. And then as for tr COVID treatments... Ohio Medicaid will continue to fully cover treatments through September 2024. After that, cost sharing is going to begin. So for others, there may be some out-of-pocket expenses, depending on your insurance. And while health departments, physicians, and hospitals will still have to report positive COVID-19 tests, the CDC is not going to be compiling community transmission models anymore. Right. That was one of the big ones. The reports we've all become so used to will get thinned down. They'll still keep track, but it's not going to be like it has been. Like you said, it's endemic. The emergency is officially over. That's it for today in Ohio for a Tuesday. Thank you, Lisa, Laura, and Layla. And thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs>